You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. I'm sitting here chuckling over many, many, many years ago. It wasn't that many assistant vice president of really important things, Esther Yada. All right. So good morning, Asbury University. Okay, that was really sad. Good morning, Asbury University. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I am, I am truly very pleased and very honored to be among you. I look out on this crowd and I see people that I've known for 20 years, and I see the children of people I have known for 20 years. And Esther just informed me that I also saw the grandchild of people, yeah, maybe it was many many years ago. All right, so I'm on campus today because I'm across the street doing Asbury Theological Seminary's Scholars Who Preach series, and as I am a scholar who preaches, your chapel crew thought it might be a good idea for me to come over here and practice my skills on you guys. So I am very pleased to be here, and I bring you warm greetings from your sister school, Westmont College, yeah, where most of the stereotypes you've heard are mostly true. Uh, This is sunny Southern California. So yeah, students do indeed come to class in shorts and flip-flops, pretty much all year long. And uh, even when the temperature drops to the unbearable level of maybe 68, 67 degrees, they might put on their Patagonia puffer to guard themselves against the bitter cold. But the news is the shorts and flip-flops, they'll go all the way through February. It just makes me laugh. This is the land where infinity pools are a thing. Study breaks often involve a little surf breakdown on Butterfly Beach. And one of the funnest parts is that skateboards are actually a legal means of transportation in the bike lane. Yeah. In fact, right before I left, there was a guy who took it to a new level. He's in the bike lane, State Street. It's busy. With his dog. Yeah. So this guy managed to navigate all of State Street on a skateboard with his dog. I was kind of impressed. So come visit us sometime and come to know the crazy world of of SoCal. All right, our topic this morning is hope. It's a good topic, don't you like? And hope, the only thing stronger than fear. I think that's a pretty good title. I have to fess up though that I didn't actually think it up myself. I sort of stole it and I stole it from that guy, from the epic tale that most of you in this crowd know very well. You were raised on it. It is the saga of a certain Katniss Everdeen, yeah? An unlikely leader, if there ever was one, a young woman who, due to her singularly loyal heart, winds up the random target of an evil empire. 
an evil that is way bigger than she is, a capricious evil that considers Katniss and everything and everyone she holds dear completely disposable. There is a famous scene that is pictured in this image when President Coriolanus, who names their kid that? Yeah, Coriolanus Snow, resplendent in his wealth and completely insulated from the horrors of his own empire by his power, he asks his gamekeeper, Seneca Crane, if Seneca understands the real purpose of the Hunger Games. Do you guys remember this scene? And Snow asks Crane, who is ridiculous in his frivolous attire, he says, why do we have a winner? Why do we have a winner? And Crane, like most everybody else in the audience, is confused. So Snow presses his point. Why don't we just round up 24 young people from the districts and execute them all at once? It would be a lot quicker, yeah? Well, Crane still doesn't get it. And so with poorly veiled disdain, Snow leans in and says, hope. Crane still doesn't get it. Hope, Snow says. It is the only thing stronger than fear. Snow's point, if we're going to attempt to control 12 brutally oppressed districts and keep them from revolution, we are going to need something stronger than fear. Now, that's where my title comes from, Hope, the only thing stronger than fear. And I can tell you, like most of you, throughout the books and the movies, I completely despised President Snow. Yeah, every fiber of my being wanted to get Katniss and Rue and Prim and Gail and Peta and get them as far away from this man and his arena as I possibly could. He and his cold and callous calculations not only terrified me the first time through, they made me sick to my yeah? But I also fully realized that when Snow made this statement, he was right. He was right. Hope is stronger than fear. Both hope or fear will keep you up till 2 a.m. prepping for the big exam. Yeah? Both will squeeze those last 10 push-ups out of you during a brutal practice. Both for a season will get the very best effort out of you. But hope is actually the more powerful of the two. Yeah, fear can push you to do things that you thought you couldn't, or in many cases shouldn't, yeah. But hope, hope will make you stand your ground when for as far as you can tell, you're the only one left standing. Hope will keep you fighting it out in that big game until the last whistle blows lungs screaming, legs collapsing, because maybe, just maybe, this is a 28 to 3 kind of day. You got the reference? If you were from New England, you would get the reference. Come on, Tom Brady. Okay, hope is what keeps the watchman on the wall when everyone else is ditched and run. Hope is what gets you back on your feet when an opponent twice your size has knocked the wind out of you. Hope is what gets you to say, yes, I'll go, when everybody else is saying no, and maybe even more importantly, hope is what'll get you to say no when everybody else around you is saying yes. Hope is why you're listening to me right now. Hope is stronger than fear. Let me tell you a story. When I was teaching at Wheaton College, this is Wheaton College, and this is me. Turn the slide. Yeah, 
Wheaton College, you recognize it, you probably applied to it. Um, it's known as the Asbury of the Midwest. Yeah, laugh. Okay, good, 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 I'll cue you. All right, when I was at Wheaton College, there was a spring semester in which I was privileged to teach the book of Isaiah to 30 fabulous undergrads. Okay, they weren't fabulous all the time, but that's another story. And in light of Wheaton's liberal arts identity, Asbury of the Midwest, um, I decided that I was going to challenge my students to do their final exegesis papers in a transdisciplinary fashion. In other words, I made the Bible and theology majors work with the economic and education majors so that the final projects were actually informed not only by Bible, but by somebody else's discipline as well. Great idea, yeah. Don't you love it when profs do stuff like that? Don't you love group projects? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, the news is I actually got three really startling presentations out of that assignment. Three presentations that really caught my eye. Because the deal was I had three psych majors in that class. You know, our future therapists and psychiatrists who were going to help us sort out all of our stuff and make sure that I marry the perfect person and that I get the perfect job and that we raise perfect children. Yeah, those people. Good luck, psych majors. Okay, well, to my great surprise, each one of my psych students wanted to work on the same topic. Hmm, not just the same topic, but even the same concept and messages. Now keep in mind that Isaiah is a really big book and there are a lot of options. So I was trying to figure out where is this coming from? And the answer is because each of my psych majors were hearing the same thing coming out of Isaiah's 66 oracles. What were they hearing? They were hearing hope. Hope spoken in passionate and compelling terms by my man, Isaiah, to a community who, as I had been detailing to my students all semester long, was at rock bottom. Folks who had finally reached that place where their sin had caught up to them and they had no foreseeable future. They had blown it. They were down for the count. Broken, battered, gone. And to my great surprise, each of these students were interested in the highway passages that are sprinkled throughout the book of Isaiah. So what in the world was that about? These students all wanted to work on passages like Isaiah 11, 15 through 16, where our prophet is offering a word of messianic hope to the exiles of the northern kingdom. And the Lord said, make a roadway to cross on foot, so there shall be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that is left of my people. They wanted to work on passages like Isaiah 35, 8, the great climax of the book, where the desert is being transformed into sparkling pools and green grasses and wildflowers. And here we read, a great road will go through that once deserted land. It'll be named the highway of holiness. Evil-minded people will never travel on it. Only the redeemed will walk on it. And passages like 62.11, as our prophet catches a glimpse of the final climax, what you and I call heaven, 
For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. Go through the gates, prepare the highway for the people. Build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones. Lift up an ensign over the people. Tell the daughter of Zion your salvation is coming. Okay, as I listened to my psych students present their proposals on highways and hope, I realized that my 20-year-olds knew something that I didn't. And yes, that does happen on a regular basis. What did they know that I didn't know? Well, guys, I thought I knew something about hope. Hope is the birthright of the Christian. And I know that the hope we have is a hope that doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to me. I knew that, but what I didn't know and you might not know, is that hope is apparently a psychological category. Did you know that? That hope can be quantified, and hope theory is apparently one of the hottest topics in the business right now. I had no idea. Nor did I have any idea that the world of psychological practitioners have actually identified mechanisms for creating hope, and that hope can be learned. Now, of course, if I had listened to Paul more carefully in the book of Romans, I might have known this, but I didn't listen. Nor did I realize that the Word of God through Isaiah could be identified as one of those mechanisms, a mechanism for creating hope where there is no hope. So let me start off by telling you a little bit about hope in the psychological arena. This generation's hope guru, is a man named uh, C.F. Snyder. If we can change that slide, that would be great. He wrote a book named The Psychology of Hope, Hope Theory, Rainbows in the Mind. Now, I am not wild about the subtitle, Rainbows in the Mind, but you get my point. Snyder defines hope as the perceived capability to imagine and pursue pathways to goals that get a person out of where they are, not a good place, into places where they want to be. Let me say that again. Hope is defined as the perceived capability to imagine and pursue pathways to goals that get a person out of where they are into the place where they want to be. And hope is the ability to motivate yourself to use those pathways to get to the place you want to be. So Snyder would tell us that hope involves agency, the motivation to move forward, and that it involves pathways, an avenue by which to move forward. And this, of course, is why my students were so interested in the highways in the book of Isaiah. But listen closely to Snyder's definition. The perceived capability to imagine and pursue pathways to goals that get a person out of where they are into the place they want to be. Do you hear it? According to Snyder, hope starts with me. According to Snyder, hope requires me to imagine a path forward. It requires me to find a way out of where I am and point myself to where I want to go. And it requires me to get moving on that path, which most of the time a healthy adult or emerging adult can do. All right, let's pick ourselves up and get on with it. But here's the rub. What about when we're not dealing with a healthy adult? What about when we're instead dealing with an exhausted or injured emerging adult who's come to the end of their proverbial rope, who due to the injuries of their past and the agonies of their present 
find themselves ready to throw in the towel. Those imprisoned by anxiety, those crushed by despair. How about those so silenced by injustice that they simply don't have it in them to get up one more time? How does that person find the agency and pathway to move forward? Well, according to E.M. Tong, another hope guru, under these conditions, Snyder's model doesn't work. Yep, Dr. Tong, I think you might be right. Indeed, when personal influence has lost all relevance, Tong says those extremely traumatic situations in which people are aware that what is so deeply desired is beyond reach, when neither their talents nor their resources can get them there. In other words, I've been hammering against this door for weeks, months, years, and it will not open. What do we do with those people? Those people who need hope the most. That's the rub now, isn't it? Well, I am no hope guru, but I can tell you that the conditions that E.M. Tong is describing here are exactly the circumstances of Isaiah's audience. And these were the same circumstances that were drawing my students to the, prof the prophet's words, that Yahweh was going to build for them, build for them a highway in the wilderness, a path forward. Yahweh was going to provide for the people of Isaiah's audience hope where there was no hope. All right, so we're in Isaiah 43. Israel has been a nation now since Moses came down off the mountain with two tablets of the covenant in his hands. The day that God said, will you? And Israel said, we do. The promise was that God would give this refugee populace the land of Israel as a land grant. And if Israel would keep God's covenant, they would keep that land grant. He would give them houses that they had not built, vineyards they had not planted, olive groves they had not tended. And when you consider the fact that it takes an olive grove 20 years to come to the point of production, that is a very big deal. From the perspective of a landless people whose most recent memory was generations of slavery, followed by a generation of homelessness, Yahweh was offering them paradise. And may I say, most importantly, Yahweh was bestowing upon them a new identity, a new name. You ever wanted one of those? A new start. But he also promised that if Israel broke this covenant, they would be driven from the lands just like the Canaanites before them. And therefore, all of this economic security and military safety that they had been blessed with was dependent on maintaining this covenant relationship with Yahweh. The demands were minimal, but they were non-negotiable. Well, by the year 586 BC, no, I'm not giving a quiz, but you know your Old Testament prof might. By the year 586 BC, when Isaiah 43 picks up this story, Israel has broken every promise she has ever made. Often compared to a philandering spouse, Israel has proven beyond question that they are completely faithless. And so after years of warning and correction and consequences, myriads of second chances, the God of Israel at last fulfills his covenant curse. He sends his servant, Nebuchadnezzar II, from Babylon to wipe out 
his own covenant people. The villages of Israel are burned. The walls of Jerusalem toppled. The temple is torn apart, stone by stone, and plundered. Guys, there is blood running in the streets. There are bodies piled in the alleys. And anyone who manages to survive is going to be dragged off as exiles 1,200 miles away to a place they've never seen. This trail of tears is what we call the exile. The citizens of Israel lost absolutely everything. They lost their homes, their families, their careers, their place in society, their identities. Think about the flood of refugees coming out of South Sudan right now. Think about the flood of refugees coming out of the Ukraine. Think about the Nazi death marches in 1944 and 45. Think about District 12, yeah? This was the enactment of the covenant curse. It took Israel more than 500 years to get there. It took God a bit longer to pull the trigger, but it was done. It was done. Israel was gone. And as far as anyone knew, she was never coming back. Guys, if there was ever a people whose lives were captive to the iron bars of despair, it was them. And they were fully aware that this caravan of despair that they were marching was their own stupid fault. They had been faithless, and they knew it. Stupid choices. Why did I do that? I knew that was wrong. And they were completely cognizant that they did not deserve a second chance, mercy, restoration, none of it. Yeah. When they stopped to try to imagine a pathway into the future, nothing. When they tried to stir up the agency to motivate themselves towards something, anything, none. And no one had to tell them that their hopeless situation was, again, their own stupid fault. It is into this reality that Isaiah, our prophet, speaks. And he offers these people the impossible. Hear the word of the Lord, Isaiah chapter 43. But now, thus says Yahweh, your creator, O Jacob, O Israel, the one who formed you, says, don't be afraid, because I have ransomed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. I don't know about you, but if I'd been in exile of Judah at this point in time, I would have not been expecting the author of the Mosaic Covenant to be announcing, that one's mine, that one's mine. When you cross through the deep waters, I will cross with you. Hmm, Exodus, maybe? And the rivers, I will not let them overwhelm you. When you go into the midst of the fire, the fire you walked into all by your own stupid self, you will not be burned, and I will not allow the flame to kindle upon you. Why? Because I am. I am Yahweh your God. The Holy One of Israel is your deliverer. You, you are precious in my eyes. You are honored, and I love you. Who is he talking to again? Me? Loser? On my forehead? Me? And here it is. Don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm with you. Right here, right now, I'm with you. From the east, I will bring your children. Remember that these are refugees. What happens to refugee families? Think about the trains to Auschwitz. Think about our southern border. I will bring your children. From the west, I will gather the scattered ones. I will say to the north, release them. And to the south, you let them go or you're dealing with me. Bring out my sons from the reaches 
my daughters from the edges of the earth, each one who's called by my name, who is created for my glory, whom I've fashioned, everyone whom I have made. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, I am Yahweh, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King, and I am the one who makes a way through the sea, and I'm the one who makes a path through the mighty waters. Guys, these are really powerful words, but at this point, you should be asking me, guys, this is all really lovely, but how in the world could these real people who have been dragged away as prisoners 70 years before, who have learned to wear the name tag outsider, failure, exile, cheater, addict, loser, ever find the courage to believe in a better future? How did they find, in Snyder's words, the agency to reach for something else? Well, here it is. Take a look at verse 18. Do not remember the former things. I'm going to forget it. You can forget it. Don't consider the things of old. See, I'm going to do a new thing. Now it springs up. Can you see it? I, even I, will make a way, a road, a pathway in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Quoting from Isaiah's earlier article in chapter 40, I will make a highway in the wilderness. I'm going to level mountains for you. I'm going to raise up valleys. In other words, I'm going to throw open the gates of Babylon, and I'm going to bring my people home. Yahweh is declaring that he has already imagined and built the highway into their future. He has created hope where there was no hope to be found. Take that, Professor Snyder. Because yes, when an individual reaches the place where personal influence has lost all relevance, those extremely traumatic situations in which people are aware that what is so deeply desired is beyond their reach, when neither their talents nor their resources can get them there, God literally makes the way. Were these people scared? Yes. Were they intimidated by the journey ahead? Yes. Were they more than a little tempted to despair that their past would forever define their future? Heck yes. But in that moment of decision where Yahweh said, come on, come on, Based on the character of the God who called them, they wrapped themselves in a story that was bigger than they were, and they got up and they tried again. And those exiles found the agency to become the remnant that ushered in the age of the Christ. Why? Because hope is stronger than fear. So guys, what do we have here? Well, according to the hermeneutics gurus, and I am one of those, we have in this story a paradigm, a paradigm that has been offered to us of how to get out of a bad place into a good place. The Bible has offered this to us to teach us that no matter how bad it is, your God is building you a highway into the future. Okay, I've got one more story and, and I'll be through. In 1957, there was this guy. His name is Kirk P. Richter, and I claim absolutely no relationship to this man. His research involved the phenomenon of sudden death in animals and man. And in an attempt to produce a scenario of sudden death, this scientist decided to drop a cohort of wild Norwegian rats into enclosed jars of water to watch how long it took them to drown. Nice fellow, don't you think? To his dismay, whereas some of his rats lasted only a few minutes, others, equally healthy, 
continued to swim as long as 81 hours, leaving him with a data sample way too random to be evaluated. So Richter decided to precondition his rats in order to stabilize his data pool. How did he do this? Well, he got a new cohort because he had drowned the first cohort. He submersed each one of the rats into tubes for short periods of time. When he saw that the rat was beginning to struggle, he would net them out and drop them back in their tank. Then he did it again and again and again. The end result, all of those rats moved into the 60-plus-hour category, thereby stabilizing the data sample and making Carl P. Richter a very happy man, as he could now move forward on his research in sudden death in animals and man. Ah, but sometimes science yields unexpected benefits, because in this case, what Richter actually discovered, hear me on this, hope can be learned. Hope can be learned. Well, how? Well, well, for the rats, the fact that some unknown force rescued them from their plight over and over again when their own strength was failing taught them to believe that the next time they got dropped into a water tube, some unnamed force was going to pull them out again. So keep on swimming. And they did. Now, tragically for the rats, those rats were being educated by an unknown force who cared nothing for their lives or their pain. Your God, on the other hand, knows and cares very much about your destiny. Paul says it this way, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and character produces hope. And this hope does not disappoint because hope can be learned. So. Folks, where are you on this Tuesday morning? Yeah? Where are you on this Tuesday morning? Are you perhaps juggling more balls than you can handle? Scared to death that you're going to drop one and this whole thing is going to blow up in your face? Bills that can't be paid? A class that you're pretty sure you're failing? A best friend who stopped talking to you? Perhaps an addiction you haven't even named to yourself or your soulmates? Well, guys, I've got some really good news for you. Your God knows exactly who you are, and he knows exactly where you are, and he knows exactly what you're capable of. He designed you for goodness sake. Your God has got the inside scoop on the grade books. He knows how much money is in your account. He knows how much money is in your parents' account. And here's the deal. He is not standing there with a clipboard waiting to see when you finally go down so he can check off a box. Your God, unlike Kurt P. Richter, is standing on the highway to your future. And this is what he's saying. Guys, come on. Come on. Come on, I've got you. Let's do this thing. Amen. Amen.